Well, good morning and welcome to Northridge, whether you're watching online, our Webster campus, our Rochester campus, or for the very first time in Brighton, our Brighton campus. Everyone, let's welcome Brighton this morning. Well, when I was in college, I was given an assignment by one of my theology professors to go to a church of a different denomination than the one that I grew up in. And so I decided to go to a Church of Christ church, which was right down the street from my school. In fact, there was two of them right across the street from each other. And so I headed to the first one. I went to the service. In the service when we sang, there was no instruments. It was all a cappella music. Uh, I went right after that service. I went right across the street to the other Church of Christ church. And there was a big drum set on stage and a big worship band. And, you know, I guess the difference between the two Church of Christ churches is they had a different view on how to do music. A few years ago, my wife's aunt and uncle, they were visiting Rochester, and they were very committed Catholics. They were headed to the Catholic Mass on Saturday night, and I didn't grow up Catholic, and I thought, hey, I'd love to see what this experience is like, so can I go with you? And I hopped in their car, and I had all kinds of questions. Okay, what do I wear? It's too late. (laughs) I already had on the clothes that I was wearing. Um, What do I say? When do I stand? When do I sit? Do I take communion? And so they kind of gave me the rundown of what to experience. We got there. We went and sat down near the front, and I watched them very closely all throughout the service to figure out, okay, when do I stand? What do I say? Thankfully, there was a hymn book, so I knew the, the words of the songs, and at the front of the hymn book, there was like an outline, like order of service with all the things to repeat, and so that was a helpful guide. Unfortunately, not everything that they repeated was listed in that order of service. So sometimes I just moved my mouth and tried to pretend like I knew what I was doing. But it was, it was a good experience. It was confusing to me. I, I grew up in a much different church background. I grew up in a conservative Baptist church. Every Sunday morning, the first thing we did we, was we'd go to Sunday school. And then we'd go to a service where we'd open up a hymn book and we'd sing hymns and then someone would teach uh, out of the Bible. And then Sunday night we'd go back and we'd do the exact same thing again. And then on Wednesday we would have prayer meeting, all the kids dressed up in these like Boy Scout and Girl Scout types of uniforms. And we played games and memorized verses from the Bible. Everyone wore suits and dresses. It, it smelled like old perfume. Yeah, there was uh, you know flowers in front of the pulpit, and we sat in long seats called pews, and there was a steeple on the building. And you know that was my church experience growing up. And if I was to survey everyone in this room or online and ask about your church experience, you know likely you would have similar experiences to mine. You know maybe you grew up going to church every Sunday. Maybe for you, the only time that you've been in church is for a wedding or a funeral. Or for others of you, maybe this is your first time walking through the doors of a church. So if that's your first time, welcome. Yes, I'm sure maybe you are wondering, hey, what am I getting myself into today? You know, we all have different church experiences, but here's the question. Is this what church is supposed to be like? I mean, maybe you come to Northridge and you're like, is this, is this really church? Um, you know, for all of us, when we think about church, our minds are shaped by our past church experiences. You know, maybe you grew up, you loved your church experience, and you've been part of the same church and the same denomination your whole life. Uh, for others of you, maybe you've been to church, and that's why you stopped attending. You know, for you, you found it to be irrelevant, it added nothing beneficial to your life. Or maybe you, it wasn't simply irrelevant, but for you, it was hurtful. Instead of finding a church to be a safe place of love and acceptance, you only experience rules and judgment. 
And so that brings up the question, well, what should the church really look like? And does your church experience line up with God's original design for his church? Well, in order for us to answer that question, we must first ask, well, what was the first church like? And the good news is that's exactly what we're doing in this teaching series. We are in week four of an eight-week series looking at the beginning of the church as recorded in the book of Acts. The book of Acts gives us a, a historical account of the first church. In Acts chapter 1, we saw that Jesus gave this command for all of his followers to be his witnesses, to tell the world about him, but to wait for the Holy Spirit. Last week, Nate preached from Acts chapter 2 and talked about how God sent the Holy Spirit to come live inside of his followers. They then went out to tell everyone about Jesus' death and resurrection. And one day, 3,000 people believed and were added to the church. And this small community of believers of 120 had now exploded into this group of 3,000 people, big enough to fit into a high school football stadium. And here, right after uh, the church begins, at the end of Acts chapter 2, right after 3,000 people are added, as the church is born, Luke, the author of Acts, he gives us a description of what the very first church is like. So we're going to take a look at that. Let's look at Acts 2, verse 41. Luke writes this. He says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So if we were to wipe away everything that we've experienced in church, you know, the hymns, the music, the dress, the rules, and only be shaped by this first church, then what should the church be like? Well, I believe what we see recorded in this passage is that the church is a compelling community, not a place to attend. It was a community of people that attracted others. People were welcomed, they were loved, they were cared for, they were drawn to Jesus. But what was it that made this uh, first church so compelling? What shaped this community? Well, in these verses, Luke describes for us four core practices of the first church. And so if we want to model our church after this first church, if we want to create a compelling community that draws other people toward Christ, we need to look at these four things. But before we dive into these four practices, I want to pause and I want to remind ourselves of an important truth. Some parts of the Bible give you clear commands about what Christians are to do, while other parts of the Bible simply describe what Christians did. And one mistake that we can make when reading the Bible is that we can prescribe what was only described. That is, we can make a rule where there was only an example. And so when we look at these four practices of the first church, these are not rules to follow, but they are examples 
to learn from. And I do think we would benefit from following their example, from learning from them. It would be wise to follow what the first followers of Jesus did. But again, the book of Acts doesn't tell us how we have to do church. It simply describes what the first churches looked like. Okay, so what were these four core practices that the first church did that made it so compelling? Well, Luke describes all four of them in verse 42. He says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. In the rest of our time today, I want to take a deeper dive into these four things. What did these look like for the first church? And then, hey, what would these look like for us today? So let's look at this first core practice. The first thing the church did was devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Christianity is a teaching movement. I mean, right from the beginning, when Jesus gave one of his final commands to his followers, he said, go and make disciples, baptizing them, but not just baptizing them, but to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. And if we want to be faithful in following Jesus, then we need to teach others to do what he said. But not only did Jesus give that command to all of his followers, he also chose 12 specific men. We know them as the disciples. He spent three years teaching them and sharing his life with them. And then he sent them out to tell the world. In fact, those 12 disciples are also known as the apostles. The word apostle simply means sent ones. And these men were sent by Jesus to teach the world everything he taught him and then to establish the church. In fact, Paul writes in Ephesians 2.20 that Jesus built his church on the foundation of these apostles. Okay, but why was this so important? Why did the first Christians need the apostles to teach them? Why did the church center itself on the apostles' teaching? Well, two reasons. The first one is this, that the apostles were the definitive source about Jesus. See, there was all kinds of ideas about who God was and who we are to be in the world at that time. But the apostles, they had been with Jesus. They knew what he said. They knew what he did. So they were the primary source to get right what Jesus, as our God and Savior, had taught. And if these, faith, and if these first Christians wanted to be faithful in following Jesus, they needed to know who Jesus actually was, what he actually said, and what he actually did. And the apostles, both by their experience of having been with Jesus, as well as the authority of having been sent by Jesus, were able to tell the world what was true about him. A second reason why they centered themselves on the apostles' teaching is that the church didn't have Bibles, or at least not the same as we have today. There was no New Testament when the church began. There were no written teachings of Jesus. Those would later be recorded by the apostles in the decades following the birth of the church and then later compiled into what we now call the New Testament of the Bible. So the apostles, they were, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they were the definitive source of truth to teach the church how to faithfully follow Jesus. Okay, so what does that mean for us today? Well, if our church and any church is going to be a compelling community shaped by the teachings of Jesus, then we need the definitive guide to who Jesus was, what he said, and what he did. I mean, it's hard for us to obey what we don't know. 
And today, we have the apostles' teaching as recorded in the New Testament of the Bible. And if we want to be faithful in following Jesus, then our church community needs to be centered around the teachings of Jesus in the Bible. That's why every Sunday at Northridge, we open up the scriptures to see what Jesus said. That's why every week in our community groups, we open up the scriptures to say, hey, what do these mean for our lives? But not only should you teach the, or hear the teaching of the apostles found in the Bible when you're in a church meeting, but if you're a follower of Jesus, and if you're devoted to the apostles' teaching, then you yourself need to read and understand and meditate on and memorize the words of Scripture so that you can teach them to others. Again, Christianity is a teaching movement. But the goal of teaching isn't that we will have more information in our heads, but we will have changing hearts that reflect the heart of our Savior that gave his life for us. And when we do that, we will be a compelling community that draws people to Jesus. Okay, so the second core practice the first church devoted themselves was to fellowship. Now, fellowship, it's not a word that we often use outside of the church. It's kind of a churchy word, but it's the word that Luke uses in this passage. And in this passage, we see two different aspects of what fellowship looked like for the first church. It included sharing possessions and secondly, meeting together. Let's look at sharing possessions. In verse 44, Luke writes, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Who had need. In fact, the Greek word that uh, we translate as fellowship, it also conveys the idea of sharing everything in common. So, so what made this first church so compelling? What attracted people to this community? Well, in verse 44, we see that they had everything in common. In verse 45, it highlights how they sold their property and possessions to give to those in need. In fact, all throughout the book of Acts, we see the church doing this again and again, especially in chapters 4 and 5 and 6. At the end of chapter 4, Luke gives another description of what the first church looked like, and he says this. He says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And what a powerful description of this first church community. They shared everything in common. They sold their land, their houses, their property, their possessions. They gave them to the apostles then to distribute to those who were in need. And it says there were no needy persons among them. I think what's, what's even more amazing is at this time there was a famine in Jerusalem. And so uh, a lot of people in Jerusalem, the Jews, the, these first Christians, they were living in poverty. In fact, when you read the rest of the book of Acts, you see these Christians outside of Jerusalem giving financial gifts to the Christians in Jerusalem to support them. But here, right as the church begins, you have all these people in poverty so generous that no one in the community was in need. Could that be said of our churches today? Are we that generous? Are you that generous? 
Now, nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to give in order to be part of the church. But if we want to follow Jesus, then we need to do what he said. And it was Jesus himself who said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, so what should this look like for our church? Well, I think that starts with us asking ourselves some hard questions. Do I even know the needs of the people around me? Do I care more about my comfort or those in need? What am I willing to give up to help others out? Is it simply the clothes that I don't wear anymore? Uh, Is it when I clean out my attic or my basement, I give away the things that I don't use anymore? Or is it like the people in this passage? Am I willing to sell my property, my land, my house? When I was a teen growing up, our, our youth group went, uh, our teens and our youth group went to a retreat at a camp, and I remember we were running around this field, and I looked down at my wrist and noticed that my watch was missing, and so I started to look for it. Uh, I found a guy named Chris and I said, hey, Chris, can you help me find my watch? And he grabbed his watch, took it off, and he just handed it to me and said, here, why don't you have my watch? Chris's family, they didn't have much, but he wanted to give me what was his, I'm so thankful to be part of such a generous church where I regularly hear stories of your generosity, of furniture being delivered and then put together for a single mom with three kids. When someone's water heater breaks, of a a, a person buying a new water heater and then going and installing it for them, of rent money being provided for a group member, of groceries and meals being delivered to a mom whose husband is in rehab. Fellowship includes generosity, but secondly, it requires meeting together. Luke writes this in verse 46. He says, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, notice a couple things from these verses. First of all, they met together every day. And secondly, where did they meet? They met together publicly in the temple and in homes. As we've said all throughout this series, the church is not a place, but it is a people. So what does that mean for us today? Well, a recent survey found that 65% of American Christians don't believe attending worship services is an essential part of being a Christian. I mean, that perspective, that would have been bizarre to the first church. Yes, being part of a church, it was not about attendance. But you didn't have isolated Christians. There was no Lone Ranger Christianity. There was no such thing as a churchless Christian. Their lives centered around gathering together daily, both publicly and in their homes. Maybe for you, you'd say, Jason, you know, I just, I've got out of the habit of attending church. You know, the pandemic hit You know, our kids, they started travel ball. We moved to a new town. We had a baby. I got sick, and I just kind of drifted away. You know, I still have faith. I still believe in God. I didn't intentionally stop participating, but my habits have changed. We want to invite you back into Christian community to, to make weekend services a priority in your life again, to get out of the rows of a Sunday morning service and into a group where you can be known. Where if you have a need, there's people who actually know you and can help you meet that need. Or if they have a need, then you can share what you have with them. 
Christianity is not a solo sport. And I love this quote from Trevin Wax. He says, we don't go to church out of guilt. We are the church because of grace. Okay, the third core practice of the first church that we see in this passage is the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, I don't think it would be much of a stretch to say you can't have church without food. Okay, anybody here with me? You gotta have food in church. Okay. When the first church gathered together, it centered around two things. They did meals together, and then they used bread and juice or wine to remember Jesus' body and blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus modeled this with his disciples, and the first church practiced it. That's one of the reasons why we have coffee and donuts on Sundays at Northridge. That's why when we do big group leader training events and volunteer training events at at Northridge, we provide meals for our church. That's why snacks are a huge part of your community group. And so if you got snacked this week in group, I'd say, "Don't, don't skimp. Go all out this week. There's something unique that happens when we sit down for a meal with each other. When we look each other in the face and when we share our stories with each other. A couple weeks ago, I grabbed breakfast with a few of the guys in my community group. It was early in the morning. We were eating bacon and eggs and pancake, and and our defenses were down. And and the guys in the group opened up and shared about uh, the struggles in their marriage, uh, about their marriages that didn't survive, uh, about the relationship that they had wished that they had had with their dad, about their struggle to keep up with the demands of work, about their unanswered questions about God, their worries about their future. Eating together has a way of bonding our souls together. And it's through food, it's through bread and juice that we we remind ourselves of what unites us together, the sacrifice of our Savior. And as we remember how he laid down his life for us, we in turn can choose to lay down our lives for each other. Okay, one last core practice of the first church was a devotion to prayer. In fact, if there's one central theme that you see all throughout the book of Acts, it's that the church prayed together, and when they prayed together, God moved. In Acts chapter 3, John and Peter, they head to the temple for a time of prayer, and there they heal a man who couldn't walk. In Acts chapter 4, we see that they face opposition from religious leaders, and then they pray to God. At the end of chapter 4, we see that when they prayed, the place was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. In Acts chapter 6, we see that the apostles delegated ministry so they could devote themselves to prayer. A recent study by Barna cited that 70% of Americans have prayed in the last month, but only 4% of people have prayed with others. I mean, should we, if we're going to be devoted to prayer, should we pray on our own? Definitely, certainly, but we also must pray with each other. Okay, so what does this look like for us today, for you, for our church? Well, every Sunday, about 1,300 adults gather in our services at Sunday morning at Northridge and many more online, and we pray in our services. In fact, regularly after our services, we have teams down front or online hosts to pray with you after the service. Every week, many of you go to iwant.info and you submit prayer requests for our staff and our prayer teams to pray for. 
Every week, over 300 kids gather in our kids' ministry, and they pray with other kids and with their leaders. Every Wednesday night, over 130 students gather together and pray with other teens and their youth leaders. And in fact, just since the fall began, we've had over 1,000 adults from Northbridge attend a community group somewhere in a home across Rochester. I mean, that's amazing. We love that. And that's 1,000 people gathering together to pray with and for each other. But why do we pray? Well, here's some of the things that you have recently shared with us in just the last few weeks that you would like prayer for. You've asked for prayer for your struggling marriage, for forgiveness from your past sin and the guilt that remains, for conflict with a family friend, for your son whose girlfriend doesn't follow God, for your failing health, for your battle with grief after the loss of a family member, for the finances to pay your bills, your battle with mental health, your struggle with infertility, your child that was incarcerated, anxiety after you lost your job, your family who doesn't know Jesus, the wars in Ukraine and Israel. Why do we pray? Well, we are in desperate need of God's help. And I'm so thankful to be part of a praying church, but what about you? Do you pray? Maybe you attend group every week, but you are scared to death to pray out loud. Maybe this week, for the very first time, when someone shares a need, shares a prayer request, you say, hey, I'm going to pray for you this week. Or maybe you're comfortable praying out loud, but often when, you know, whether it's a coworker sharing something or a neighbor that you meet, they say, hey, this is going on in my life. You say, yeah, I'll pray for you. This week, instead of saying, hey, I will pray for you, say, hey, can I pray for you right now? And you put your hand on their shoulder, you open up your lips, you lift your head to God, and you ask God for help. And as we pray together, God will move, God will heal, God will comfort, God will restore. At the beginning of this message, I I asked the question, what should the church look like? And if we were to take a look at the first church, then what should we be doing? As we see in Acts chapter 2, the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And what was the result? Well, in verse 46, we read, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's not about the songs that we sing or the clothes we wear or the programs we offer or the buildings that we meet in. The church is a compelling community, not a place to attend. And when we devote our lives to the scriptures, when we share our lives with each other, when we share our possessions with each other, when we eat together, when we pray together, God moves, God draws. People want to be part of what God is doing, and they will give praise to God. And so I want to ask you, let's give our lives to this beautiful community that Christ gave his life for. And as we do so, I believe that God will work. We will see his church grow and we will see his name praised. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for sending your spirit 2,000 years ago to indwell your followers so they could be a testimony to who you are. Lord, you live the sacrificial life of giving your life for us, and we can do the same for each other. And so we know, God, that your spirit still uh, dwells among us, God, and you are still moving, and I pray that you would help this church community, and, and this church community, not just in at Northridge Church, but all the churches around the Rochester area and all around the globe, Lord, that we would reflect a beautiful community that draws people to you, that sacrifices for each other, that gives, that serves, that eats together, that prays together, ultimately, God, so that people will know you, love you, and experience your grace. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.